Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Talks at GS. I'm Rob Mass. I'm a senior advisor in global compliance. Amy is a professor at Yale Law School. Her new book, which I have here, is called Political Tribes, Group Instinct and the Fate of Nations. And of course, her memoir, The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, uh, is an international bestseller translated into 30 languages. So with that, I want to thank you and welcome you to Talks at GS. Thank you so much. Really, really honored to be here. So let's start about uh, talking about your upbringing. Okay. which I understand is crucial to this conversation and, how, and the things you've written. You have a daughter of two Chinese immigrants. You've written about being made fun of when you were younger for your accent and for your ethnicity. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about how that experience may have impacted you growing up and the career choices you've made. Great. Uh, well, first, thank you all for coming. It's great to be here. Um, yes, yeah, so I, my parents are uh, Chinese immigrants. Uh, they came from the Philippines. I was born in uh, Champaign, Illinois, so I was born in this country. But back then, um, uh, there were far fewer Asians when I was growing up. Very, very few. I grew up in West Lafayette, Indiana, and I was the only Asian kid. Like, we were the only Asian family, and we were like freaks of nature. We would bring Chinese food in thermoses. Um, and uh, ugly clothes, funny haircut. My parents insisted that we speak Chinese at home because they wanted us to maintain our culture, so they actually threw us into nursery school without speaking English. So um, I think all my life I have been an outsider. Um, uh, even now, and I'm, I love Yale Law School where I teach, but I'm still an outsider. Uh, when I go to China, I'm an outsider. I'm, so I, I sort of feel like this perpetual outsider, and I think it has really shaped every single thing that I've written about. I'm very interested. Um, I don't fit neatly into any category. Um, something we'll talk about later, my first book, World on Fire, I coined this term market dominant minorities. And it's about these small ethnic minorities, like the 3% Chinese in Indonesia that control about 70% of Indonesia's private economy. And I made a name for myself when I coined this term um, and I remember telling my mom about it, and she said, that's what you're writing about? Everyone knows about that. Um, and it's, it's actually not true. In the United States, I think that people are, I found, because that book was very controversial, that Americans are very uncomfortable talking about that. They were like, you must be stereotyping. I think Americans are very comfortable talking about minorities that are both economically and politically oppressed, because that's, it's morally easy. You know, like we, we want them to not be so oppressed. But what do you do with a minority that's kind of wealthy and yet politically vulnerable? So in everything I've done, even the parenting book, it was um, as an outsider kind of doing it in my way. So, so I, think that's, um, I think that's part of, yeah, I, I do think that everything is kind of, that I do is distantly related in some ways to culture, ethnicity, and how that fits in with democracies. I can't have you here without asking you a little bit about the Tiger Mom book. Okay. What, what is the basic thesis of it, and 
I know it had a tremendous reaction, both positive and negative. I wonder if you could talk about that. Okay, so here's the funny thing. There is no thesis. Um, all, my, all my books, my first book took me seven years to research and write. This last one took me three. There are end notes. I have like huge bunches of research assistants. I wrote the Tiger Mom book in three months. And I wrote it um, actually in a state of crisis. So it's... Um, in a nutshell, I have two daughters. I was raised by very strict Chinese parents, and it worked out great with me. It doesn't work out great with everybody, but I adore my parents. They're still alive, they're 82 years old, and I complained about it when I was little, but I feel that it gave me great opportunities. So I wanted to do the same thing with my two own daughters. And with number one, it was incredibly easy. She just kind of went along with it, and it, it, it worked. Then number two, my daughter Lulu came along, and it was nuclear. Uh, I mean, she said no from the beginning. We just, we're very similar. Um, and she actually, it was kind of funny. We're very close, we're very similar. But when she was 13, she rebelled. And it, things got not funny. My sister got cancer at the same time. And so I actually wrote the book in a moment of crisis. And it uh, after this gigantic fight that we had in Red Square, I, I showed every single page that I wrote to both my daughters and my husband. It was like therapy, family therapy. And I remember when I was writing it, my daughters were like, what is this thing you're writing? Nobody's gonna buy it. You're not a famous person. Who would care about your memoir? <laughs> um, so, it, and, you know, and it wasn't exactly even a memoir because it was, um, it's all true, so to that extent it is. But um, I had such high ambitions for this book. I thought it was gonna be this great literary work. Um, you know, it, it had unreliable narrators, which I always love, and my models are, you know, Nabokov's Pale Fire, you know, this. Um, but what happened is um, the week of publication, the Wall Street Journal excerpted parts of it, basically from the very beginning, the most provocative parts. No sleepovers, you must get straight A's, um, A minus is a bad grade. Um, and under the headline, um, Why Chinese Mothers Are Superior. <laughs> So, oh my gosh, it was instantaneous firestorm. I was hated, not just in America, I was hated in China, I was hated everywhere. Um, stereotypes, and later somebody asked me, why do you think it went, this happened? Um, and a friend of mine had a really good insight. They said, you know, if this book had been called Battle Hymn of the Romanian Mother, Battle Hymn of the Italian Mother, nobody would have cared. It was like, I, 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 it was 2011, right when those um, tests came out, those international tests that showed China, Hong Kong, Singapore, number one, and the United States down at like number 33. So what I said is, I, I basically caught fear of parenting and fear of China. I hit that intersection. <laughs> um, and uh, it completely exploded. Okay, let me turn to the latest book, which is really why you're here. Uh, you know, it's interesting, your answer about the response to the Tiger Moms actually had a little bit of tribalism in it as well, when you think about what happened. Um, so your book focuses on the tribal nature of human beings and focuses on American foreign policy as the, sort of the core, sort of mess, the core um, uh, factual basis on which you make the claim. And one of the interesting things you start with in the book is to talk about the United States as a supergroup. Explain what that means. Okay, so I, I think this is actually really um, interesting and important. You know, we obviously have so many problems right now in our society, but here is something that is extremely unique about the United States. 
alone among the major powers, you know, and I will defend that, that is different from France, different from England, we are what I call a supergroup. And to be a supergroup, you need to satisfy two simple conditions. First, a supergroup has to have a very strong, overarching collective identity. The second condition is a supergroup has to allow all of its um, subgroup identities to flourish, to not suppress them. And this is a country where, at our best, you can be Irish-American, Japanese-American, Croatian-American, Libyan-American, and yet intensely patriotic at the same time. And it's very rare. So if you take China, China's hugely powerful, not a supergroup. Why? It satisfies the first condition. It's got a really strong national identity you know, 95% Han Chinese, but it does not allow these subgroup identities like Tibetans or Uyghurs or the minorities to flourish. And if you look at um, a country like France that is very similar to us, it's a Western democracy, it's actually not a supergroup by my definition for the same reason as China. It's got a very strong overarching national identity, um, but because of this French concept of laïcité, um, Minorities aren't allowed to wear headscarves. They had the burkini ban. If you remember, they weren't, people weren't allowed to wear the full body swimsuit. And Sarkozy said, you know, in this country, you have to speak like a French person, eat like a French person, talk like a French person to be French. So a lot of people think that this um, not allowing individual subgroup identities to flourish is part of what's contributed to a lot of the, the radicalization there. So we're, we're, we're kind of unique this way. And the link is that we forget. When we go out and do foreign policy, we forget that it, how rare it is to have a um, to be a multi-ethnic nation and yet have the strong national identity. The example I use is Libya. Libya, like the United States, is actually also a post-colonial multi-ethnic nation, but um, it is now basically a failed state um, uh, after we deposed Gaddafi. In part because it's it, that overarching Libyan national identity was not strong enough to hold that country together. Uh, and part of that is because Libyan, it was just a kind of a colonial construction. They just drew up the lines. It was too artificial to hold it together. Um, you talk about uh, the mistakes we made in Afghanistan and Iraq, and, and you have two chapters on that which I think are really compelling. I'd like to know if you can go over those first. So Afghanistan, after 9-11, uh, we switched our ideological blinker. Suddenly we were all about rooting out uh, terrorists and Islam. So we invade Afghanistan, and we basically uh, saw the Taliban as just a bunch of Islamic fundamentalists, which they are in part, but here's what I bet a lot of you still don't know. Um, the Taliban is not only a fundamentalist movement, it's also an ethnic movement. So Afghanistan has um, a, a lot of different ethnic groups. The national anthem mentions 14. The four biggest ones are the Pashtuns, the Uzbeks, um, the Tajiks, and the Hazaras. The Pashtuns, like whites in America, dominated the country for 300 years. That is, the Pashtuns uh, founded the country and they ruled it for 300 years. But during the Cold War, they started to lose their dominance. They started to be afraid that they were losing way to the Uzbeks, the Tajiks, some of whom were very good at business, warlords. When we intervened in Afghanistan after 9-11, we didn't pay attention to any of that. And what we did is we actually aligned ourselves with um, Uzbeks and Tajiks in, in this northern alliance. So we toppled the Taliban incredibly impressively. It was like within months, yeah, cheering how great our military is. As you know, 
I mean, 13 years later, they're back. They're back, they still, they're, they've taken over much of the country. And what we missed is, we missed this ethnic dimension. Again, the people of Afghanistan at first welcoming us, quickly saw, wait a minute, these people are, the Americans are helping our rival ethnic groups. They're gonna displace us. And the government that we put in place also, while it had a Pashtun leader, had a lot of Tajiks and Uzbeks. So, so we missed that, and, uh, and this is not controversial now. I mean, now a lot of people say we need to deal with this, but my point is, like, we are always playing catch-up. We always make these gross mistakes, and then we're racing to fix the disasters years afterwards, when things are already very difficult. Iraq, very quickly, because I think you know more about, Iraq had a market-dominant minority, the Sunnis. The Sunnis were a 15% ethnic minority that had dominated the country for centuries. First, under the Ottomans. The Ottomans were a Sunni power. And then under the British. The British love um, divide and conquer, so they ruled through the Sunni minority. And then finally, under Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was a, a, a Sunni. And he uh, not only favored the Sunnis and let them control the oil and, and, and much of the uh, government positions, he persecuted the Shias and the Kurds and, and other groups. So in 2003, in the afterword of World on Fire, I predicted it. I got it right. I said, um, we had just invaded, and I said, this is not going to work out like people think. And, I, and I, I was actually very specific about what I said would happen. I didn't just roughly say it would be uh, chaotic. I said, what's going to happen is that the newly empowered Shiite majority is going to use their vote to, for payback. They have been persecuted and marginalized and oppressed for centuries. What would you do if you finally get the vote? And that is exactly what happened. Um, they, uh, and we made lots of other mistakes too. Once the Sunnis realized that the democracy was not going to help them at all, they quickly joined the insurgency. They joined Al-Qaeda and ISIS most recently. So again, ISIS, uh, most of you probably know this, of course it's a fundamentalist movement, but it is also a Sunni movement aimed at rooting out the uh, Shia infidels. So there are these ethnic sides to, um, uh, and, and Condoleezza Rice has said to, too that we, we miss the importance of the tribal structures and tribal loyalties in, in, in Iraq. So now we're going to move from the foreign world to the United States because you also apply the same lens to what's going on in the country. I want to read a quote from the book which I think is particularly provocative. The left, this is about the United States, believes that right-wing tribalism Bigotry, racism, is tearing the country apart. The right believes that left-wing tribalism, identity politics, political correctness, is tearing the country apart. They are both right. Right, okay. So first, since I keep getting this, um, by saying that, I do not mean to be um, equating those things. Okay, so of course, racism and bigotry and white supremacy are way worse than students protesting. So that's get that out of the way. Um, but yes, I think if you want, I mean, the point of the book is if you, we, we want to understand how we got to this place, the country that people don't understand, everything's so confusing. Um, so I actually think it makes perfect sense. Um, uh, most of, for 200 years, America was a country that was dominated economically, politically, and culturally by a white majority. So things felt very stable. It felt like we had no tribalism, 
because it really, we just had one very big and powerful tribe superimposing its views on everybody else and other voices were silenced. Um, what's happened in the last 30 years or so is because of massive immigration flows and also a change in where the immigrants are coming from. The immigrants are no longer coming from Europe mostly, but from Asia, like my own parents, Latin America, Africa, uh, other parts of the developing world, whites are now on the verge of becoming a, uh, losing their majority status in the United States. That's predicted about 2044, whites will no longer be a majority. So that's the first thing that's happened. Um, for the first time in America, every group is threatened. You know, it used to be just the minorities who were threatened. Now it's not just minorities, whites feel threatened. There are these amazing surveys that I cite in the book. 67% um, of working class whites feel that they are subject to more discrimination and persecution than minorities. Over 50% of whites in general feel that way. Um, it's not just Muslims and Jews who feel threatened, Christians now feel threatened. You can see this in the rhetoric. You know, they're, 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 they're attacking the Bible. Um, with, the, with Donald Trump in the White House, women feel very threatened. With the Me Too movement, men feel threatened. Straights and gays, uh, uh, coastal elites feel threatened. The, the, the working, you know, and when groups feel threatened, that's when they retreat into tribalism. That's when they get more insular, more defensive, more us versus them. And that's why you're seeing identity politics, a term that, by the way, is so misused. Um, but you're seeing open identity politics in a way that we haven't seen in this country. I mean, we have open white nationalist movements. We've always had them. But now they're conferences, you know, that are covered by the Atlantic. Um, uh, you know, white national, uh, and you have um, uh, college campuses. And uh, so to say a little bit more about that, um, uh, the left, the, the main watchwords for the left um, during the civil rights era, for a long time was always inclusivity and equality. But one of the things that the left and progressives started to realize uh, around the Reagan era was that, you know, a lot of this group blind language, all this universalist term, we're, we're you know, um, equality, colorblind, this is just being used as an excuse not to address real problems. You know, the right is using group blindness and all this uh, stuff to block affirmative action and to not pass policies um, uh, aimed at correcting these long historical racial inequities. So there was a shift. There's been a shift in the rhetoric of the left. And today on college campuses, group blindness is the ultimate sin. I mean, if you talk in terms of universalism or don't acknowledge, uh, you know, specific group experiences, um, you know, you will be accused of, of, of promoting structural racism or, or, or microaggression. And so that's a very big shift, and I understand it. So I, what I find very frustrating about the rhetoric, and I, every time I've given talks everywhere, people want to jam me into a category. I think a book comes out, and it's like, okay, is she left wing or right wing? And people just have their nails out. It's like we, they try to figure out which side somebody's on so that they can either attack or retweet them. And, and I think it's really part of a massive problem. We can't talk to each other. So I get identity politics. As an Asian minor woman who has long had, you know, supercilious white guys trying to speak for me, I get it. Like, I, I have, I, I get why that is so annoying. Um, but I also think that right now, what I see on campuses is a hardening of groups. So part of it is epistemological, which again, I also get, which is 
um, you can't speak for me if you're a woman. You can't understand me if you're not Asian. You, as, a, as a queer person, I'm telling you, you cannot understand me. And again, I get it. I, I've, uh, uh, it's partly irrational. I, I remember um, some years when I was younger, uh, I, I said I was going to Shanghai, and a Caucasian guy who actually had better Mandarin than me said, oh, you mean Shanghai? <laughs> and I just went to punch him. Like you have no, you have no right to talk, you know. But that's partly irrational. Like you know, um, so I get it, right? I get that in that that feeling of who. Um, but I do think that we're what I see on the campus is that people can't speak to each other. It's increasingly different silos, and we can't have a debate. It's like we see people on the other side not just as people that we disagree with. Uh, but that literally as immoral people, not, not our enemies. Um, and these labels are hurled around. Racist, white supremacist, misogynist, Islamophobe. And there, there was a reason for those terms, and a lot of people should be called out. But at a certain point, we are attaching that, those labels to like 60 million people, or, or the entire half of, you know, the entire middle of the country. I think we're getting to a point where we're, we're starting to just not be able to see each other as fellow Americans. And it goes back to the supergroup point. Are there kinds of things that you would like to lead the country uh, that you think could help the country break this bad cycle we're in? So back to this idea of a market dominant minority, um, one of the, the reasons that I get what's happening in America is I say that um, in addition to all groups being threatened because of the demographic change, something else has happened, which is that um, uh, class or even education has split America's white majority. You know, it, it used to be that you could be from a small town in Ohio or Kentucky, go to public school, state college, move to New York, California. Now there is so much less upward mobility and geographic mobility. What I demonstrate in the book, actually with statistics, is that, that now there is so little interaction between what you might call the whites on the coasts, whites in this room, uh, you know, whites at Yale, um, and whites in the middle of the country, basically Donald Trump's space. There's so little interaction between, an intermarriage between those two groups that it's almost like an ethnic divide. So what I've written about is, um, is that we are starting to see, it, the one thing about America that was so stable was that we never had a market dominant minority, and stable in an, arguably invidious way, right? It was always just this white majority, and it felt very stable, because a lot of the smaller groups were just, continued to be oppressed. Now, we are starting to see, for the first time in our history, our own weird version of a market-dominant minority, and that is this overused term, coastal elites. It's not all white, it's not all Republic, Democrat or Republican, it tends to be associated with liberals, but if you think about it, it's different. It's not an ethnic minority, of course, it's not a religious minority, but it is a very, very insular and snobby minority. So to answer your question, first of all, I think we need to do a much better job. This divide, this, this coastal inland divide is super dangerous. I have proposed, um, uh, I don't know how young this crowd is, but you know a lot of people do gap years after high school. And it's usually fairly privileged kids go to, with their privileged friends, uh, you know, to, no, you know, to the Netherlands or Guatemala or, or Australia, they spend a year. Um, 
what about if there were some sort of program where people from one part of America have to spend a year or, or encourage to spend a year in a, in a part of America that they would ordinarily never go to? Not in a condescending way, like let, let us enlighten you, but working on a common project together, you know, infrastructure, parkland, something. I, th I mean, we really, it's like two Americas right now. There is so, and I also don't like this vocabulary policing. Um, you know, I teach on a college campus. I am so well trained to not say an offensive thing. Uh, I, 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 and I still act, you know, I have, to, I have to constantly keep up. You know, the vocabulary changes all the time. Um, and, uh, and, you know, if you say the wrong thing, it just comes down on you. Um, and I, if you think about the middle of the country, many people have never really interacted with a Muslim, I mean, and they may have some terrible views. But I think that people should be allowed to, I think it's natural that people who have seen one version of America starting to change, the Grammys, who's winning the Oscars. Now, we, I, I'm a huge fan of immigration and I fundamentally disagree with that view, but I think if you just shut it down and say, oh my God, you racist xenophobe, it, it will just again go underground. I think people should be allowed to express their views and we should enlighten and debate and try to persuade. So I think we need more, talking to each other. Um, I also think we need courageous leaders, honestly. Thank you, Amy. Thank you all for coming. This podcast was recorded on March 23rd, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.